The sponsor for the Shepherd's Crook podcast for the month of March is Buck Knives. Every hunter knows that it's not about the success, it's about the pursuit. The Pursuit series of fixed blade and folding knives by Buck has you covered. Proudly made in the USA, the Pursuit series is available in two sizes, large and small with or without the gut hook. The non-slip handle will keep your knife comfortably in hand while you process your harvest. Gear up for the season at BuckKnives.com. While you're there, use the promo code BUCK20 at the checkout and save an extra 20%. This offer is only for a limited time and it expires June 1st of 2020 and it's valid only at BuckKnives.com. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I am really excited today to be able to interview a man that I first heard on the Meat Eater podcast, and this uh, gentleman is a uh, professor in Baylor University, and his name is Dr. Bracey Hill. Bracey, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Good deal. Well, I'm going to let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about what you do here in a second, but I'm going to start us off with prayer, and then we're excited to hear from you, so let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you for Dr. Hill. I thank you for uh, this opportunity I have to talk with him just about uh, Christianity, hunting, all the things that go along with that, question marks people may have as they think through some of the, the ethics behind, uh, behind hunting, and especially pastors who are listening in, maybe have never done this before or even thought about it before. I just ask that this would be a fun time. Pray this would be a good time and pray that people would be uh, encouraged and challenged and uh, that it just would honor you ultimately. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Bracey, for those who don't know you or maybe not familiar with your work, I'd love to, if you just tell us a little bit, a little bit about yourself, uh, your wife, and then what it is that you do, and tell us about your book as well that uh, came out pretty recently. All right. Uh, in short, uh, I am a history professor, and uh, I spend my days teaching young people, mostly undergraduates, uh, history of America, as well as uh, British history and an occasional world history survey. Uh, my occupation is one that uh, is kind of a product of life experience. I started out ever so sexy job as a librarian. Uh, eventually <laughs> nice. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Now, did you have the glasses to go with that, that you peered over into the souls <laughs> of people? Exactly, and encouraged silence. Uh, I then was a grade school teacher. I taught uh, junior high and high school in a private preparatory classical school. And then uh, when reaching my 30s and trying to find out what I was going to do for the rest of my life, it was either a choice of continue to teach or move on to the next stage. And that's what I did. So I pursued a PhD. So I have uh, graduate degrees in theology and in religion, the history of Christianity in particular, and uh, have found my way not to religion department, but now a history department where I've been for uh, almost 10 years. Fantastic. All right. I want to get a little bit into your book and let you explain just how you came to the point of, of putting this book together. Uh, God, Nimrod, and the world. Would you tell us the origins of that, how you got contributors to say, yeah, I want to do this? Because it, it's a very unique book. i am you know, been thumbing through it, read three or four chapters, and uh, there's not many other books like it. And so where did the idea come from? 
And how did you get to the point of writing God Never on the World? In the midst of my dissertation, and a lot of stories begin that way, uh, but in the midst of my dissertation, I, I found a kind of solace in the midst of stress during hunting season. Uh, obviously, hunting season uh, is it increases stress because you're trying to do more than one thing at a time, uh, whatever your family life is, your job is, etc. And at that point in time, I was doing my dissertation work as well as of course trying to be a you know a husband uh, but still found places to go hunting courtesy of in particular one of my colleagues a, a fellow phd student my dissertation was on a 17th 18th century theologian slash historian who was initially an independent in britain then became a presbyterian but then followed his reason and increasingly historical uh, literature that was coming out towards a Unitarian position. Uh, hmm. Many times it's called a proto-Unitarian. His name was James Pierce. Uh, many people have overlooked him. And so I wanted to look at his his ideas, but also how history and his understanding of history influenced his theological shifts as a dissenter and then to a position where he was a dissenter from dissenters attacked hmm. by the Anglican Church as well as Presbyterians, Independents, and Baptists. That said, Again, hunting was a nice escape, and somewhere along the line, I realized as I was hunting with a couple of PhD students that there's a lot to this activity that is more than just an, an activity. There's, there's the possibility, and I would argue the necessity, for considering deeply what you're doing in life, and mm. taking the life of another animal uh, is, that's worthy of contemplation. So... I, perhaps looking for an escape from academia, maybe just trying to procrastinate my work, I dreamed of this idea of a book looking carefully at hunting from Christian perspectives. Now, at first I thought, I'll write the book, but then I realized no one wants to hear that much of my mind, um, and I'm not sure that I had that much to say of any depth. So my thought was, let's get a lot of voices to talk about this, Mm -hmm. and see if there aren't different perspectives, which I knew there was. Um, so in 2007, came up with the idea. I began to pitch it to publishers. And, you know, the, the general line was, it's a, and I quote, sexy idea, end quote, but it won't sell books. Uh, and so after pushing a number of publishers and trying to get them to get on board, I gave up in 2007. I had, though, already contacted some, I would guess, about eight to ten different academics to write essays, many of whom had never written anything about hunting, but mm. nonetheless were active in hunting and thought seriously about it. Um, and, and I won't say they relished the idea of writing academic texts about it, but nonetheless, they were willing to do it. So went on, graduated, uh, got a position teaching in a religion department and brought the idea back up. Uh, mm -hmm. I met a fellow in San Francisco at uh, AAR, and he, I found out he was the editor of a series on sports and religion for Mercer University Press. And I gave him a pitch. This is a book I thought of. What do you think? Hmm. Within five minutes, he said, send me a proposal in an email. Man, uh, that's great. I said, that's fantastic. So I did. And then he said, send me a formal proposal. So I began gathering people up who I thought might be able to write interesting essays, whether they be short personal essays from practitioners, historians, sociologists. I was looking for people who studied sports, 
Uh, I was looking then also for theologians to toss their ideas about. And as I was looking at it, I thought it'd be good to have a balanced approach, uh, pro, con, pro with nuance, et cetera. Uh, and in that process, I went and brought on a co-editor who in particular would take the opposing side, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I gathered up more than two dozen contributors. Uh, he ended up bringing a friend of his on who wrote the negative or anti position. Uh, and I gathered contributors just simply by cold calling. Just okay. encountering people's work and thinking they could write. And so not just simply, you know, people you knew here. I mean, you're, you're Googling and trying to find, you know. Hey, I tried to get Peyton Manning. So I called okay. the office of the Indianapolis <laughs> Colts. Called nice. him up. Uh, and then when he couldn't do it, I tried to get Jeff Saturday, who okay. uh, yeah. was center. Um, and I got a nice response from uh, Mr. Saturday's assistant saying that he couldn't at this time. Um, I cold called and tried to contact them uh, as Duck Dynasty was quite the thing at the moment. Uh, you know, the family and, and, and finally was able to get Jace Robertson after a year and a half of harassing him mm -hmm. uh, to give me an interview and to work out an essay between the two of us. Uh, and that's just how I did it. So I identified yeah. people who I found that were, uh, were hunters and I wanted both practitioners. I was looking for athletes as a sports and religion series. Mm -hmm. and I was looking for the first half to be a more descriptive portion of the book. So describing hunting and hunters, the middle portion being essays by hunters. And I wanted, again, athletes. I wanted uh, soldiers. I wanted people from uh, musicians and from the medical community. I wanted people who, uh, who particularly had already written about it somewhat from a devotional point of view, mm -hmm. uh, like Steve Chapman. Uh, and then at the end, I wanted the ivory tower represented and people who contemplated this negatively, positively, uh, but gave a particularly nuanced position. So that's the way I framed the book and put the contributors into their various areas and then basically bookended their sections with my own contributions. Yeah, I, I really have appreciated just the structure of it, the descriptive portion at the front end, and then moving into uh, even the scholarly work at the end, not that it wasn't all scholarly work, but the level of depth in thinking through sport hunting and just the whole concept of the book, I found fascinating because there's not a lot of deep thought about hunting in general as you just look out there and, and Google and get on Amazon. It's just a very unique work. And so I've really appreciated what I've got into already. So as stated before, man, well done. Well done. Thank you. So the I, I heard you talk a little bit about this on another podcast. It wasn't the mediator. It was the uh, one of the other podcasts that you were on. And as hunting is a, a post fall activity and, and thinking the, through the big pictures of big picture of hunting and the restoration of all things where hunting fits into this. I, I have through thinking through this work and just the last year, I don't know at what point you can describe yourself as a hunter because I've killed one deer at this point and I went rabbit hunting once. I'm loving it. Yeah. But to be able to think through it and pray through it, dive into the scriptures and wrestle with it has been good. It's been good for me. And I didn't grow up hunting. So it wasn't a default position for me. Well, hunting's fine, you know, whatever. It was something that I've had to wrestle through. What's your history with hunting? Is it something you grew up with? Is it something that you started later in life? Tell us your personal history, if you would. Just when, when did you start hunting? How do you get into it? And most people I've found call it hunting, not hunting. <laughs> yeah, you dropped the G. So, right. So tell us about your hunting history, if you would. 
All right. First, let me let me make one comment about whether or not you're a hunter or not. Okay. Uh, if you are hunting, whether you have taken game, kill game or not, you're hunting in my. It's about the pursuit, as well as the likely or anticipated end. In that pursuit with an anticipated end, is hunting. Uh, hmm. One could I I would say could never actually take wild game, but pursue it adamantly or, or ardently i should say that's hunting mm. um so you're a hunter good. No question about it <laughs> okay well you uh, settled it from the man himself so absolutely. i can officially i can yeah. put it in my instagram title here hunter <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay so, so my uh background was um i grew up and it's relevant i grew up the son of a minister uh, okay. my father was a pastor as was my grandfather as was my great-grandfather so i grew up in that environment and uh, we were frequently moving as my father was either taking this pastor to that one, going to graduate studies, or uh, when I was in my uh, middle school years and then in high school, my father was a professor at a couple of Bible colleges uh, in seminaries, even, even now in semi-retirement, he's been teaching classes at seminary. So that's the background. So we moved around a lot, but we didn't do much hunting because after all, we were poor. Uh, we didn't have opportunities and access to land, particularly in an environment that was moving towards, when we lived in Texas, uh, the necessity of having leases. And leases meant that you paid money. And besides, dad was always busy on Wednesday nights, as I was, because I went to church with him, as well as on Saturdays as he was preparing his sermons, and Sunday because he was delivering them. Sunday right. morning. So there wasn't a lot of time to do outdoor activities. However, when we returned to my grandparents' homes, particularly my father's parents, uh, there was always the stories about hunting and that, you know, the stories of when my father was growing up and, and the, brother would, the brother would tell stories about, you know, the other brothers and talk about my grandfather. And so there was this tradition I didn't get to participate in, hmm. but that was very familiar and enticing. Okay. After all, it was how you became a hill boy was that you did these things. Now, I didn't get to do them. When I was in my high school years, uh, my father began to occasionally, and I mean occasionally, find opportunities to take us out. I have a younger brother. Uh, in most of the cases, it meant going to public land and looking for squirrels, which we never found. Uh, <laughs> and rarely then he would gain access, more so when he was a college professor, to private land that we could deer hunt on. Um, that meant that we had little or no success. But right. you know, when I when I picked up the magazines, when I read the outdoor lice and the building streams, I didn't really pay that much attention to hunting because I couldn't. Mm -hmm. I didn't get a chance to. Always read the fishing articles because fishing was democratic. Yeah. More people could fish. Right. Uh, you might not catch a lot, but you could catch some. And so I was always oriented out of whatever you want to call it necessity towards the fishing. I watched my bill dance on Saturday mornings and took notes in my notebook about what Bill Dance told me and, you know, I'll end on in fishermen. But it wasn't until my high school years that I began to get opportunities. And to be honest, they weren't all that fruitful. Um, it was finally my senior year of high school that I turned down an opportunity to go hunt with a high school classmate of mine who was a nephew of Johnny Morris. You may know that hmm. name associated with Bass Pro Shops. Yeah. And I got an invitation to go hunt uh, with Johnny Morris and my classmate and I turned it down. Uh, my father was concerned, of course, that there might be uh, consumption of alcohol. Oh. 
okay. of, of firearms. And he gave me a decision as a senior in high school to make my own choice. And okay. I decided not to go. But I got an opportunity that morning on opening day, hunting on a place that was one of my father's students. My father killed a deer. I could see it from my stand. Uh, we got down. He showed me how to, to fill dress a deer. I'd seen it in magazines, but never mm-hmm. done it. Uh, I was elated. That was awesome. That yeah. was just cool. Uh, he took the deer back and, and put me in a stand uh, that had been vacated by his, his student. And 45 minutes later, I killed a deer. I shot my mm-hmm. first deer. It was a seven point. I would say an anemic seven point. Okay. <laughs> uh, nice. It was awesome. We have pictures. Of course, we don't have much camouflage wearing flannel uh-huh. uh, and cotton shoes, that kind of stuff. You know, I think we may have had leather boots by that time. Okay. And, uh, you know, used to sitting on two by fours in trees. This was probably the best stand and the best opportunity I'd ever had. Flash forward, graduate school. I graduated from college. I didn't have a lot of times to hunt. I came to graduate school at Notre Dame in Northern Indiana. Mm-hmm. And uh, while they're studying theology, I was given opportunities to hunt on some of my fellow uh, church attendees uh, land and had success and began to bow hunt out of just simply yeah. the challenge and opportunity of it. I traded a guy uh, for a bow that he didn't fit him. I, ta- I started tanning hides on my own, which is a vicious activity. Nice. And I uh, traded in two hides, which I did poorly, and I still regret it, for this bow. I got it set up then as a school teacher and was still hunting fellow church members uh, land and began to bow hunt and just thoroughly enjoyed it. So it was out of the kindness of fellow church members. And then later on, even my students, parents that I gained access to land Hmm. and I loved it. And I learned, started learning by books, learning. I taught myself how to hunt and there was no YouTube and, uh, and I didn't have cable. And so that d- act of discovery in the field and at home just uh, became addictive. Yeah. There's something to it. That first deer, when I shot it, and I guess it was in November, and it was within 45 minutes. It was a little seven-pointer, just like you shot. Seven-point buck, about 115 pounds after it was field-dressed. And I processed it myself, and, and, and I, I ground up the meat, did the whole thing. And we got the sausage in my refrigerator. There's just something elating about it. It just was incredible. And shot that deer, and I'm hooked. So one of, one of the things, so hearing your background, your history with that, it's, it's so cool hearing people's stories about how they got into it and then how they maintained a love for it. But for guys that have never been hunting before, never even thought about it, there's a contemplative nature to it. And you and I had talked it briefly about this on the phone. And when I'm trying to recruit pastors now into this and, and friends of mine to say, hey, you know how to consider this next year. You don't know, go with me. We'll go together on this. We've got some land here we can we can do this on. It's almost as if it's a spiritual discipline if if it's done the appropriate way. And when you mention that, that hunting in the right way and, and being present with creation, with God, with these animals, what how how do you hunt in a way that's contemplative that's not just out there to kill an animal but that is godly and right and as if you're out there with the lord hunting with him explain what is the contemplative nature of hunting 
well, first off, the caveat is everyone approaches it differently. So I can only speak to my own personal experience in those things which I see as being a compelling argument. Mm -hmm. um, so for instance, some people ask, what do you think about when you're hunting? For me, I don't think about much. I'm hunting. Yeah. And that's the fascinating <laughs> okay. thing about hunting for me is that, now there's different types of hunting. I, I absolutely love small game hunting. Uh, but I think even in a very active activity like bird hunting, hunting pheasants, quail, my favorite hunting squirrels, and that's a fairly active type of hunting versus, let's say, stand hunting for, for deer or the like, uh, let's say even you know, you know, a farming type of environment, mm -hmm. both of which, both of those activities, particularly if pursued by oneself, and I'm not going to encourage that. I think that there's, and I'll get to it, there's something to be said for hunting with others. There is something that pulls us out of our usual form of thinking and demands that we be in the present. Mm -hmm. You have to be immediate and in the present. Uh, failure to do so will mean uh, that you will miss an opportunity. But that, I think, is almost the most addictive thing for me in hunting. And that is the, I cannot think about other things. Because if I do, I fail. And, and I find that, for instance, technology invades this. It gets boring. One reaches out for a phone, sees what's going on, check the yeah. weather, or you know, you're checking Twitter, etc. And you're not living in the moment. And the duck you know, lands and, and the decoys and opportunities get interesting then. Mm -hmm. So that's not the way it was supposed to be and not the fullness of the activity. It demands that we be ever in the present. I fear that so much we think about when we don't live in the present. I see people at concerts or at music events. They're constantly pulling their phone out to take pictures, not actually experiencing. It's as if they must somehow save this moment and technology and share it with others for it to be valid. Hunting pushes us towards that experience of, I would argue nature, mm -hmm. but of things that we generally don't pay attention to, to the details. Yeah. In that, those moments of immediacy, of focus, if one looks around, the world, the natural world, for lack of a better way of saying it, is amazing in its intricacy. Hmm. Something that we frequently just don't even pay attention to, comes zooming by the car window. And at best, you know, we might look out the window, see the squirrel at the feeder, and wow, that's cute, that's great, and we move on. It's yeah. almost as if we experience more of nature via YouTube videos than we do, for instance, in normal life, and, and the same thing actually in the field. So for me, being in hunting and in experiencing that, with the inevitability, one might hope, of death being present in the equation. There is this existential moment that while it's hard to maintain that kind of focus, gets repeated throughout the hunting experience. Mm -hmm. And then one begins to contemplate the biggest issues there are. Who yeah. am I? What am I doing here? What's the meaning of life? What is life? What is the font of life? And it can give the big questions that we avoid, like my own death. Mm -hmm. How do I, how does this play out? How do I relate to my fellows? Uh, how do I relate to the animals in the field? Um, you know, the squirrel around me. And it sounds corny, but I think that these kind of thoughts actually can pass. 
Mm -hmm. hopefully not through but stay then in the mind of the hunter and whether he or she is pursuing it in the company of others these are things then that are the point toward the ultimate question the, the ultimate reality yeah who am i in relationship to my god that's good good so the place i went in thinking through the death of an animal was and this is not in the questions I sent you beforehand, so we're just going to wing it for a second and may switch gears here a little bit. But my father is from this area. I'm from Southern Illinois. We have some really big white-tailed deer up here that are amazing. And my father said when he was growing up, he didn't see any deer around. Southern Illinois had hardly no deer whatsoever. And so when I was thinking about the death of an animal, shooting a deer, and thinking through, what am I going to feel like when I pull the trigger? When I shoot the deer, when I go up to field dress the deer – what am I going to be feeling inside internally? What am I going to be thinking? Yeah. And the process for me, the thought process went to the, the species, the, the death of an animal, and how much better of a place white-tailed deer are in Southern Illinois today than they were when my father was a young man or young boy. And when my grandfather, who was he when he was growing up in Southern Illinois, said he doesn't remember seeing any deer at all, not an occasional deer running through the neighborhoods yard you know, neighborhood yards or anything there's just no deer at all and one of the things that really has struck me is the means by which god has exercised his sovereignty through the hands of conservationists and through the hands of hunters thinking about species and the care of an ecosystem and the care of public lands and animal health as a whole to me has been really refreshing and it's been a new thought to think that from Teddy Roosevelt and his care about both hunting and conservation to today, there is practical impact where if there wasn't real legislation to hunters actually caring for the species they're hunting, then we wouldn't be talking about hunting today. There wouldn't be anything to hunt. And so for me, the, these questions, as I, I just thought through shooting the deer, walking up to field dress it, and thinking about my grandfather's words and my father's words and all that goes into hunting and the care of conservation, it was mind blowing. So would you explain a little bit about conservation and you being a historian, but he would know far better than me, but how conservation and through the efforts of hunters and shooters, um, do hunters actually care about the conservation of species and the health of the ecosystem? Would you explain just a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, America was a unique environment because after all animals got here first and humans showed up very late so in the last places if you follow traditional kind of chronology that humans migrated into north america and south america into south america humans have always had a very significant impact as a an apex predator on animals in north america for most of us who are familiar with american history the moment is not you know thousands of years ago, it's going to be the story, for instance, of the bison uh, and mm. disappearance of the bison. That sounds so innocuous, the disappearance. Let's put it this way, the eradication of the yeah. bison from North America. Uh, before Columbus, there likely were 60 million or so bison in North America. By the time we get to 1850, there were roughly 27 to 30 million bison. Uh, primarily at that point in time across the Great Plains down into Texas and along the Brazos River and north up into Saskatchewan and uh, into Canada. By the time we get to 1900, there may have been as many or at the most 1,000 bison mm. in North America. 
Some estimates have it as low as 300 to 500. There was a reaction as America had moved all the way into the Pacific by way of the conquest uh, in the Mexican-American War, and they picked up California. So America had stretched them by 1850 all the way to the Pacific, and we began to fill in, if you will, by way of settlement. And of course, the railroads connecting in the 1870s, crossing the entire continent, humans began to fill in, and we began to, without limits, without constraints, and without what we might consider a conservative, conservative uh, conservation mindset, wipe out the population. Uh, animals that once roamed the entire continent, like elk, were reduced to a very small environment. Bison were wiped out. Uh, and it's not just sport hunters. It was primarily, and first and foremost, soldiers who were given the order to kill bison to eradicate the other, quote-unquote, animals, mm. not desired types, the Native Americans, hmm. uh, cutting at the base of their food way and their life ways and forcing them then on reservations. And then came the hunters, the market hunters, and then eventually came some sport hunters, but most of all, it's, it's market hunters. We wiped it out. The West and the loss then of so much as the last kind of bastion of wildness in America, you began to see then a remorse, I might argue, uh, mm -hmm. a, a desire for that type of, of what was then the manly or masculine kind of heroic behavior of going out West and hunting the big shaggy animals or the mule deer, or more importantly, the, probably the elk, um, and that they weren't there anymore. And so you saw mm -hmm. a, a reaction from people who were not hunters and those who were hunters to try and conserve wildlife. The bison became a focus uh, of many of the attempts, like the American Bison Society, um, who had members like, for instance, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, as well as William Hornady, who wasn't a hunter, uh, but we see then this movement toward conservation. Preservation, like John Moore, loses the battle. Conservation, the idea that we should manage nature to our advantage, but with an eye for its continuation, yeah. wins the day. Theodore Roosevelt establishes the Forestry Service. Uh, he puts in charge a guy by the name of Gifford Pinchot, who is very much a conservationist, not a preservationist. So you use nature, but you use it to the advantage of all of us. That's where you get, for instance, the National Forest. Mm -hmm. Roosevelt, who has more than 50 of the National Forest and National Parks established, establishes them so that people would have access to them. Yeah. Uh, now, not everyone agree with that, but that gives us this idea that we've got to stop behaving as we have and think about greater goals than personal freedom, if you will, even a kind of personal democracy we have to put a kind of greater good forward, but for individual satisfaction to be able mm -hmm. to go out West. Um, that movement continued to gain ground. It particularly had its heyday, I would argue, between 1890 and then, of course, the beginning of World War I in 1914. Okay. But hunting and maybe pulling men away from the United States for a while and bringing them back gave some wildlife populations an opportunity to, to spring back creating, implementing, and enforcing, by way of increasingly game wardens, um, animal or game laws, most importantly for waterfowl. As mm -hmm. waterfowl were deemed, because of their migratory nature, to belong to, to the United States, as did mm -hmm. deer, rather than to the states and to the people, 
you began to have these federal laws passed in the 19 teens regulating the number of waterfowl that could be killed mm -hmm. and they had been killed by market hunters primarily but also sport hunters but sport hunters really pushed for this because they realized if they didn't do something there would be no deer there yeah. would be no ducks. Right. missouri if i remember correctly in the year 1900 had roughly 500 whitetail wow that's it i mean so they've got tens of thousands of whitetail deer today but in 1900 only 500 mm -hmm. so the impetus came from a number of different places. The idea of kind of preserving this kind of sacred wildness that was disappearing completely, an opportunity to experience wildness as a form of American freedom, but you had to preserve it. But also hunters who wanted this activity to continue and realized that with the increasing urbanization and suburban sprawl, even that early, but particularly after World War II, they didn't do something there would be no wildlife for the next generations or even for them. These things all came together with a number of laws and bills and agencies that increasingly were funded by sportsmen and by buying of license. Mm -hmm. So for instance, in my own County Hill County, ironically, uh, <laughs> there are not, yeah, there aren't that many or have not been that many white tailed deer as it had been predominantly cotton growing territory there are white-tailed deer, a few mm. along creeks today. Uh, on our property, which is dedicated to wildlife management, we don't hunt deer anymore. We did initially, only to realize that the population was very, very small. It was a little bitty herd. Once mm. we realized that, we realized it was far more important to us, even though our neighbors might have that not the same perspective, to create a refuge for them because we wanted to see them. I'll go yeah. hunt deer where deer are more populous. Mm -hmm. That impulse, I think, which has particularly been put forward by hunters who see their own gain out of it have brought yeah. about the conservation of at least certain species predominantly those species which hunters pursue yeah but at least those have been pre uh, not just preserved but increased yeah and i love that it's measurable i mean the effectiveness yeah. of game manager game management has been fantastic and you know I, I think from state to state states are responsible for the management of game is that correct from That's state correct. to state okay the, the federal government oversees certain things like for instance migratory birds okay gotcha and it, like uh, animals that are on the protected list or something like that as well from from what i understand but yeah the game management has been done it's been done so well and it's me measurable and it, it got me thinking about what we do it does matter and the way we live our lives on this earth matters and over time, over the decades, being able to live responsibility as, as a group of people with the animal kingdom, we see the benefit of responsible living today because of past generations being responsible with, with game. And it's been really neat to think through and to process through. So I'm thankful for all the work that people have done to preserve hunting for us and, you know, the well-being of the animals. Um, so today, you know, as you're if you were to give like a big picture view of the state of, of hunting in the United States, what's the state of hunting in, in the United States right now? It's an intriguing question. And the answers are somewhat disturbing considering what we were just talking about. Uh, in the last 25 years, what we've seen is that the number of hunters in the United States has actually dropped by about 2 million people. Hmm. Now we're still running around 11.5 million hunters in the United States. But our numbers are dropping. And of course, as the population of America increases, that means the percentage 
of hunters in America are actually dropping. We're looking at only about 5% of Americans hunt today. Now, if we just said that much of conservation and management at the state and even federal level is dependent upon the tax dollars associated with the purchasing of sporting activity, guns and ammunition, as well as licenses, there are fewer and fewer people providing those funds and perhaps one could argue an increasing demand for the need of management mm -hmm. as we see for instance urban sprawl the disappearance of wildlife regions uh, whether they be uh, conservation regions or just simply lands personal lands that are devoted to wildlife we're just seeing those disappear uh, when i grew up in texas i remember listening to bob white quail i returned to texas and i don't hear them they're mm -hmm. gone in east texas yeah. they're gone so what's happened? Well, there's various things. One could argue anything from, you know, red ant or the fire ants that have moved in to drought. How do we manage this? It takes a considerable amount of energy and focus, but money as well. So the negative view, or if you will, the pessimistic view is we're losing a culture, broadly speaking, and there, I think there's subcultures within hunting culture, no question about it, where we're losing the culture that has for the last century funded the management which has brought about the resurgence of wildlife populations in America. Now the positive. From my estimation, what we're seeing is that smaller and smaller group of hunters, there is at least a minority of them that are becoming more and more vocal, hmm. I would argue more and more, I hate to use this word, intellectual, but definitely intentional. Mm -hmm. You can see that, for instance, with things like the meat eater, which is just yeah. a huge, I mean, uh, Steve Ranella has turned this into a media empire, but it has a lot of positives. The success, briefly, of things like Duck Dynasty, but people who, you know, my uncle used to watch, uh, you know, Duck Commander, buy Duck Commander calls. No one knew about it other than hunting communities, but it put it out into the public eye. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, what we're seeing is that hunting has become less popular in activity, but has reached higher approval ratings. And in fact, we see, and it was a recent study that came out, that we see that hunting approval has moved from 73% to 80% of the American population approves wow. it, but only certain types of hunting. Primarily, hunting that is for wildlife management or for meat or for the protection of, of humans has moved to about 85% approval hmm. among Americans. Now notice meat management and protection of humans. Mm -hmm. Now, and I think that this is a key part of the, what I would argue since the 1990s that, but particularly in the 2000s, that movement towards intentional, careful hunting that has the ability to express its purpose and its function to, an, to, to the population of America and broadly, and it's increasing approval ratings, but it's not necessarily increasing hunters. So we have mm -hmm. this Got it. dynamic. Now, sport hunting, quote unquote, received only 50% approval from people. Now, it's not defined what's sport hunting. I would argue mm -hmm. hunting for meat is also sport hunting. Because right. none of us, I would argue, are hunting for survival. Mm -hmm. It meat, but we also get less tangible things out of this process whether they be quote unquote spiritual, religious, or just simply enjoyment of various sorts. 
So I think hunting is becoming more articulate, at least the minority of hunters are. I see a, an increased approval of at least, I think, that minority group. I think that there's increasing disapproval of what might be considered the old style redneck hunting. Mm -hmm. uh, so what you're seeing is a bifurcation, I think, that's going on in the American approval. Not that that's hugely important, but I think as we increasingly move to a smaller and smaller portion of the American population hunting, that group is going to be dependent upon the larger non-hunting population as they're going to determine the laws yeah. regarding hunting, regarding access to animals, regarding the use of weapons, firearms, ownership of such. That minority had better become articulate and remain articulate and intentional in their activities. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important. The, how we say what we say, how a hunter in the public eye says what he says or she says is incredibly important and how it's received by those who are listening. I think that's that the articulate nature of, of the minority is powerful. It's good. All right. Well, let's uh, get a little bit of a framework of the theology of hunting. I mean, you put the book together, you pitched the idea and got a publisher and got God Nimrod in the world out Give us a theology of hunting, if you would, and let's just talk a little bit about that. And I would really like to get into what does the Bible have to say, like positives, negatives, a, a argument for hunting, argument against hunting, and then just kind of go from there. Okay. Uh, well, the fact that there's even the possibility for both interpretations points to the fact that I think in many people's minds, uh, the Hebrew and the Christian canon give um, either not a clear view of the interpretation and the, if you will, the program for or against hunting, um, or at least what's there is open to considerable interpretation. If we look at the Hebrew canon, there are not that many instances of characters hunting. There's probably the most important ones are going to be uh, the character of Esau, and of course right. that juxtaposition to his brother um, and, of course, he was the hero of sorts. And then you have the nebulous character of Nimrod, which is mentioned early in the book of Genesis. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, you don't have that many characters who are identified with hunting. Now, of course, that demands a definition. What is hunting? Because uh, one could say, well, David supposedly kills these prey animals and that's kind of part of his legacy is right. you know as a young shepherd boy or whatever the like um or uh what about the killing of the lion by samson uh what you get is the question of the pursuit of an animal rather than for instance the defending of a domesticated flock of the like from, from yeah. predators uh hunting at least in how I would interpret it is the intentional pursuit of a wild animal with the presumed end of the killing of the animal. Again, it doesn't mean that the animal has to die. It's that intentional pursuit, as well as the idea that the animal is capable of escaping the hunter. Um, and if you have those kind of just those two kind of major components, there's just not a lot there. That said, if one does look at the Hebrew canon, there are a number of instances describing hunting behavior in the ancient Near Eastern world. And that would be, for instance, the building of kites, mm. 
which is kind of like building of walls, which would direct the animals in, into a trap, whether it be nets, which is okay. a common uh, description of hunting behavior, or uh, the description of using bows and arrows and the like for the taking of game, um, additional protein and meat. You do have the rarest of instances in the New Testament, uh, at least there's some argument that the description and then of Jesus talking about the, there's not a sparrow that falls that his father doesn't see. Mm-hmm. The idea being that the sparrow falls because the hunters would capture them with the intent of selling them in the market as very, very cheap protein. And you can pull theological implications from that. Uh-huh. And then there's just simply descriptions of wild animals and domesticated animals in both the Hebrew and the broader Christian canon. Uh, you can see that a lot of times in the Psalms and descriptions that are there embedded in the poems and the poetic language, as well as in many times the prophetic literature, which gives you kind of eschatological visions which incorporate animals. You can turn also to apocalyptic literature and the apocalyptic literature even of the New Testament, so Mm -hmm. the book of Revelation. So the material from which one might pull a coherent doctrine or theology, better way of saying it, uh-huh. regarding hunting requires some flexibility or some openness for looking for useful material. Right. Yeah, that's good. In, in a lot of ways, when we think about worldview, we have to bring the overall biblical narrative and just the scriptures as a whole to bring an almost like Proverbs wisdom to a particular issue that we're confronted with a modern issue, an ethical question or something like that. And with, uh, with hunting, it seems like because you can build a case for pro and against hunting so that you, you have to have a, a biblical understanding as a whole to be able to come down and then make a decision. Okay. Am I going to be for this or against this? So let's, let's talk about that for a little bit. What, a majority of the the writers of the book are for, or at least saying that the scriptures are not in any way prohibiting us from hunting. And yet there is an article in here in your book that, you know, there's, there's clearly an argument to be made that modern day hunting is outside of the realm of what uh, is acceptable in the scripture. So for you, how have you worked through these things? And then could you give us a, uh, you know, is the Bible against hunting or or, or is it completely neutral? Because I like one of the arguments in there as well as the edible animals, the, the animals that we're able to eat right. prescribed in the Bible are only able to be eaten by being hunted. And so there are metaphors of assuming that the people in the scriptures understand hunting already and all of these things and trying to piece these together. So what is the biggest argument in your mind? Let's just go with against hunting. Uh, okay. All right. So first off, we always have to remember the historical context for any kind of theological position. So most of the cases, what you're going to see then is you're going to see a rise of Christian theology, theological positions against hunting, I would argue, emerge in the 20th century, particularly in the, you could argue the late 19th century, but early 20th century. Okay. Uh, you find it in Britain, in particular in, of course, urbanized areas. Uh, as a reaction to hunting, which is mostly perceived in Britain as sport hunting, chasing of foxes, mm-hmm. riding the hounds, etc. Not the same type of hunting that one would have seen in North America over the prior centuries, where you still have a frontier and you still have quite a bit of space mm-hmm. that is available democratically 
to the people of America. So the first place you really begin to see criticism is in the, the United Kingdom on the UK, and it is, I would argue, historically and culturally shaped. By the time we get to the end of the 20th century, you see an increase in arguments against hunting in the United States as well, and they are particularly informed, I think, by uh, modern philosophy, particularly as a kind of extension of civil rights, uh, not just to humans, but then a, a way of looking at other animal life and extending those rights and protections then to non-human animals. And hmm. so uh, you see the rise of animal rights activists and animal rights philosophy in the early 1980s. Um, names like, um, off the top of my head, Tom Reagan, for instance. Uh, you see uh, a fellow by the name of Peter Singer. Um, and you also see it in regards to Christian theology with Andrew Lindsay in the 1970s at Oxford, who continues okay. to have an institute there at Oxford. I just got an email from them today, actually, uh, uh, encouraging the purchase of a book that is on the proper use of cows, and it's written by one of their fellows who is from India or Indian background and describing them the proper treatment of bovine creatures according to tradition. And so you can see this kind of uh, blending them with other religions uh, under Lindsay's Institute, then the Center for Animal Rights. The argument that generally is espoused then by fellows or sympathizers or people connected then to that perspective are ones that kind of coincide or, or parallel to what you see in the book, book written uh, by Sean Graves, who if you look at his mm -hmm. source material is almost entirely pulled in by fellows of Lindsay's um, uh, center there at Oxford. Okay. The arg argument in general goes something along these lines, as I understand it. Uh, it starts with a philosophical approach, and that is that we should cause no harm, cause no pain, particularly to any sentient creature. That's the premise, and it's kind of a golden rule. I wouldn't want it done to me. I shouldn't do it to someone else. So okay. there's a philosophical undergirding, I think, that's there. Secondarily, they then turn to the Hebrew scriptures in particular, and secondarily, I would argue, to the New Testament. And they argue then for the idea of, um, particularly in the uh, eschatological literature, uh, mm -hmm. prophets of, of the Hebrew Bible, and they're talking about the language, if you will, the lion laying down with the lamb, and right. this uh, idea of a peaceable kingdom that extends then to the animal world or the non-human world, but that, that somehow they are very closely related, which I think most theologians would argue that you that, that the covenants that are variously you know sprinkled throughout the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible clearly incorporate humans and the natural world, that there's not a separation. Mm -hmm. Um, they also then frequently turned into that kind of almost a liberation type theology in the, in the New Testament, the idea that Christ comes to, to uh, give sight to the blind and to free prisoners. Right. And that part of the covenant then extends then to the animal kingdom. Um, and then they'll go ahead and make ethical arguments from basically those major premises. You wouldn't want it done to you. The idea of a new creation in Christ and that this kingdom of God is. Uh, uh, and has we have the responsibility in some ways of bringing it about it's the here and now or or the very near future uh, and human agency has a key part in doing it and or 
being transformed by grace into a new reality and a new relationship to nature. Okay. Now, in theory, then, that is an indictment of sport hunting in particular. And again, sport hunting being any type of killing or pursuit of animal, um, which I would argue in anywhere, almost anywhere in the natural world today, which benefits or however you want to look at it from domesticated agriculture and domesticated husbandry uh, and the raising of animals, et cetera. In other words, we don't have to hunt to have protein. We're doing it for more reasons than just survival. That mm -hmm. doesn't mean that again, that people aren't eating the animals they hunt, but there's a whole lot more going on than just survival. Thus we call it sport hunting. Um, so the argument then is that sport hunting is in many ways a kind of expression of a degraded humanity, not one that is living in and as new creation. Gotcha. Okay. So now that is not, now that is not uh, for you where you've ended up landing. So how for you, um, have you worked through arguments like that? And you obviously are a hunter. So what's the tipping point for you that uh, you are an active hunter and that those, although may be compelling points for you are not, uh, it's, it's not convincing enough for you to say, yeah, that's, that's right. Okay. So assuming I'm ethically consistent <laughs> and theologically consistent, then in theory, uh, I must find some, some opening or acceptance of hunting, sport hunting in, in biblical theology or theology in general. A couple of things in that. First off, I take that previous position, which I was describing, and if I follow it to its, what I consider to be its logical conclusion, particularly if I look at let's say the instance of Graves uh, essay within the book, then I would follow it naturally to veganism. Hmm. Okay. So to me, unless the, the, uh, the person espousing such a position, of course, is being consistent and living uh, within a vegan, vegan lifestyle consistently, right. then they're being inconsistent. So it, so if that person is, then perhaps then I can say that's a consistent argument. For me, as a omnivore, uh, mm -hmm. from both my, my habits that I was reared on, but also those I've consistent, uh, consistently kind of continued to stay in, happily eating a whole lot of different things. Um, for me, when I look at the scriptures, that's my perspective. And I'm sure it influences then my interpretation. So this is the path I basically follow. One is that in theory, I am a new creation, uh, secondarily, but not fully yet. Also, and I, this kind of came out of a, uh, some correspondence recently I had with Dr. David Curry at Gordon Conwell, you know, the idea that we're living in a kind of intermediate age. Uh, and what I mean by that is that just as, for instance, there's not supposed to be marriage and giving in marriage right. uh, in the eschaton. So we are seemingly encouraged to, that uh, the institution has been encouraged by Christ himself. Uh, obviously, some traditions see it as actually an avenue of grace, a sacrament. Mm -hmm. 
So then the taking of animal life is not out of bounds. Thus, for instance, Peter's vision, perhaps. Right. Not that he necessarily did kill and eat. Right. But the message used an analogy that accepted seemingly the taking of animal life. So if I'm allowed then allowed to take incidents for doing so in the scriptures and that it is a consistent ethical behavior my pursuit then is to do that hunting do that i would say acquisition of protein in the most ethical fashion i can for me that particularly means then not having someone us raise my food in cages behind fences yeah. And what I would consider it a tortured environment and embrace the taking of animal life, accepting the life and death elements in the cycle and being as efficient and ethical and humane, for lack of a better term, uh-huh. in the taking of the animal life and to take full responsibility for that death. And even in the taking of an animal's life, recognize my own imminent end, and the both the melodrama, but also the sacredness, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. of death. Um, that whole process, which is disturbing and at the same time um, enlivening, and exciting let's be honest in the pursuit the chase Mm -hmm. the the practice uh of skills and the taking of animals and for me in particular in my my household that is the processing of those animals as we and i say this with some pride but also with some considerable thankfulness since the year 2000 we have consistently prepared our own meat and protein in the house and we've not bought red meat for ourselves since that year well done now we do on rare occasions about once over four months buy chicken okay but it drives me crazy to buy a a container of chicken and my wife as well as we see truckloads of chickens in freezing temperature or 110 degrees crammed in these little cages mm-hmm. um it, we, we're weaning ourselves off of it and so we we live off of fowl we live off of uh venison various types of deer wild pigs squirrels and rabbits um that we take in the field and thus we're responsible for their deaths but also then how they fit into our lives but also we're concerned more and more with the welfare of nature from a conservationist point of view. And that is we seek the well-being of species, admittedly those that feed us the most. Um, And we are actively involved in the management and the encouragement of populations uh, in our area. And our land, for instance, is dedicated to wildlife management. So the theology is one that turns particularly to the Old Testament. It recognizes that we see instances of criticisms, as you see, for instance, in the chapter by Kenneth Bass, mm-hmm. that the Hebrew Bible in particular seems to portray hunting, the, the catching of the animal in the pit, um, in many times a negative fashion, but in an attention to the, the uh, trying to create a kind of empathy. Um, and almost always then the literature is trying to pull at the reader and help them recognize the plight of the animal. 
yet at the same time it doesn't condemn the behavior and the greatest hunter in the entire hebrew canon is the greatest also the greatest warrior and that's yahweh himself hmm. you see him repeatedly uh you know capturing uh or trapping of course the evil but also seeking and pursuing israel as if yeah. it were prey uh seeking its own good in this hunt and so there are models if you look more than just scratch the surface beyond if you will genesis and the permission in the noahic covenant for the eating of animals mm -hmm. um, there's more than that there that sees hunting as um it, it's evocative and intentionally evocative of a number of different things that apparently god understands about human existence and embraces even as part of his own personality through the writings of the scriptures and so it's it's a difficult practice but yeah. one that i think that there is at least permission in the hebrew bible and in the new testament which really doesn't say much about it mm -hmm. um and that through uh, observing others who do it and through one's own practice that there can be actually I would say good that comes from it there's also as in all things the potential for either evil or for detrimental effects mm -hmm. uh, but I think that's true for most any activity yeah agreed I love the idea I've heard you mention it a couple times before of, of God as hunter the idea of God mm -hmm. on pursuit and fantastic imagery and and uh, not only does that evoke certain thoughts, but it's provocative as well. Like it, it, it's provoking to think about as God as, as hunter and coming and pr pursuing. It's an image that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the reform crowd and in my understanding of God, of, of the pursuer of those who are, who are lost right. and are in rebellion and him being the hunter coming to get uh, his own is a, a really neat image as I think through, think through that. Um, big question that, you've probably thought through and talked to many people about that I have and would love to see what your answer is. Probably no definitive answer. Restoration of all things. Is there hunting? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. <laughs> Come on. I don't know. Uh, you know, if there is, if it is an acceptable behavior and if there is pleasure in it, good in it, um, I don't know. First off, I don't know. Uh, so another way of asking the question is will there be will there be dogs in heaven my dog is an omnivore and my cats are without question carnivores if there is animal life if you will in the restoration in the new creation are they all going to be herbivores it's difficult for me to see that and i just can't see beyond the present um yeah and to me, most of the descriptions, which, I mean, didn't seem like Jesus spent that much time at all talking about the afterlife, least of all the fulfillment of all things. He seemed more concerned about how we live the here and now hmm. and with our fellows, uh, although he does curse a fig tree, so he's not exactly embracing all of nature. He does it, I guess, for the purpose of teaching, and he seems to have embraced the idea of hunting for fish. Yeah. Um, in the here and now, and perhaps even had a nice fish fry on the beach for his apostles. Uh -huh. I dwell on the present and, and am not compelled then to really kind of harbor a uh, hazard too many guesses about the fulfillment of times and the restoration. Yeah. Um, I struggle enough trying to live this life in front of me. 
Yeah, that's good. Okay, so say somebody's thinking, I, this Dr. Hill guy, I like what he's saying. I'm, I'm liking thinking through hunting and the possibility of doing this. I'm going to pick up his book, God and Emerald the World. They read it. They've, they've wrestled through it and said, I want to do this. I want to get into hunt. I want to get into hunting. They've started watching Steve Rinella, got on Mediator. They watched the hunting public and they're loving it. Where do they go? If somebody wants to start hunting. What do they do? That's hard. And a lot of it depends upon your environment. Okay. Um, so let's say, for instance, you live in Texas. You don't, but I do. If you live in Texas, you first off have got to be able to find wildlife that you can hunt. Problem is, Texas has very little, less than 3% or so of the, of the huge area of Texas is owned by the state or federal government as public. The vast majority of it is privately owned. Okay. To get access to private land, you have to pay. So that may not be necessarily true, for instance, when I, you know, lived in Indiana or mm -hmm. perhaps even in Illinois, where, I, you know, I had people who would happily let me hunt their land if I trapped raccoons right. and possums and, you know, <laughs> tried to kill coyotes that harassed their horses. So, you know, depredation, you know, if there's corn out there, there's a, a farmer who very well might allow you to go hunt. So the first thing you have to do is obviously find opportunity and opportunity mm -hmm. comes in lots of different ways. Uh, one of course is access to hunting area. The second thing is you got to figure out if you've never hunted before, how do you do it? Mm -hmm. um, when I was growing up, that meant reading magazines, outdoor magazines, et cetera. That's changed. Uh, there are a number of avenues then for tutorials on things like YouTube, yeah. uh, meat eater, uh, meat eater now has, and increasingly is directed in its, uh, its internet presence um, and its, uh, what do you call it, its website to encouraging beginning hunters, giving mm -hmm. them advice. Um, and so you, you need to find an, an avenue for information. Mm -hmm. Familiarize yourself with it. In some ways, the easiest way to do this is latch on to a veteran hunter. There you go. Yeah. Because That's then good. you can mooch land mm -hmm. and suck up information. Yeah. Uh, if they're willing to communicate. So if you're interested in this, the best thing you can do is find someone. Now, the point is finding a community that has these people in it. Uh, church is a great place. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you're in a, a small church, a middle-sized church, it's quite possible that the pastoral staff know who the hunters are or the landowners are in the church. And you can literally go to those people and ask. Now, mm -hmm be straightforward, be honest and follow instructions. Let's put it that way. Uh, but if you can also find anyone within your community, particularly of course a church community of the like, that you can say, Hey, look, I'm interested. Can I, would you be willing to tutor me in this? Now, first off, let me say for beginning hunters, some hunters are immediately going to grimace when you do that, because what they relish is their place, which is probably, it, you know, they took forever to find this opportunity or it's family land, it's already shared. Mm -hmm. And there's that immediate, I think, reaction of, no, I don't want to share. <laughs> uh, I think it's fair. I think it's true. Uh, and so it's difficult. So recognize that for, for the initiate, it's going to be difficult for the veteran to share. Yeah. But at the same time, they will probably benefit greatly from sharing. Emotionally, uh, they get to see another generation 
even if you're an older person, you're another generation of hunters. So you've got to find um, a tutor, if you will. You've got to find access to land. If nothing else, start watching YouTube and find someone else who hasn't done it before, and the two of you go out and try it. The three of you go out and try it. Yeah, A lot of times I find today from my own studies and my own surveys that this generation, this current generation, however you want to say it, I would argue 35 and below, even 40 and below, don't start hunting with the traditional forms of hunting that previous generations had, which was small game hunting, squirrel hunting, rabbit hunting, etc. Mm-hmm. A lot of it has to do with the fact it's not sexy. You don't find many tutorials about that on television because they don't have huge antlers or something right. like that trophy category. And those territories that have animals like that are disappearing. But if you can find them, that's a great place. If you can have someone go with you or even the two of you or three of you go along together, you don't have to be super quiet. It doesn't require a lot of equipment. Um, it's something you can make mistakes with together as long as they're not mortal. Um, and <laughs> and enjoy yourself and get immediate feedback. That's uh, good. In most states, small game allows you to take more than one in a day. Squirrels are a great place to start. Mm-hmm. Because farmland has fence rows. Fence rows have squirrels. See if you can't find a place that allows you to do that. Pursue them and enjoy it together. That experimentation gets you then deeper and deeper into, and you can begin to change species and environments as best you can. Yeah, that's good. That That is the way that I got in. I had a gentleman that was in his 60s at our church, and I had mentioned some interest, and he said, you know what? Come to my place. You can hunt on my land. Go to your – I didn't, hadn't done – because I, I grew up around guns, but had not grown up, up hunting, and so I had not taken a hunter safety, hunter safety course, and so he just told told me everything to do and show me the ropes. He's taking me rabbit hunting again here uh, in a couple of weeks. And so I had an older gentleman that just came up and befriended me and said, I'll, I'll show you how to do it. And he's been, he's been great. So uh, where can people go to find out more about your book, about your work? I know you have a website and if you would just give a little pitch for all the stuff that you're, that you're doing now so we can find out some more information about you. Sure. I do have a website. It's bracyhill.com. So that's, B-R-A-C-Y hill.com. Um, on it, I have just some mention of print, uh, podcasts and appearances I've made before, but also have started what I guess would be characterized as a blog, particularly my own ruminations about uh, spirituality in regards to hunting, hunting ethics, uh, and the like. It's just a place for me to kind of get my ideas out there. Um, I do have a Twitter uh, you can find me on Twitter and basically there's, you know, I'll post the occasional important website or survey that's come out. Uh, God Nimrod in the World is in its second printing by Mercer University Press. Uh, you can find that at Mercer University Press's website as well as most retailers, Amazon, etc. cetera. Uh, but uh, you can also contact me through the website if you're interested. I do go around doing talks with folks. Um, and uh, it's something I enjoy because it introduces me to new populations, new people, yeah. different perspectives uh, across the country. Fantastic. Well, Bracey, I appreciate you taking the time and coming on the show. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit theshepherdscrook.co. For care and counsel, please call, text, or email to set up a session. You can follow The Shepherd's Crook on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please consider sharing this episode and leaving a review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you use. And let me encourage you to remember Jesus Christ.